This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So, Tim, got to say, a favorite event where we get to check in with what's on the minds of investment professionals, the trends they care about, uh, that their clients want to know about, and the voices they want to hear from, and just kind of how to get it all done. It usually happens at the annual BNY Mellon Purging Inside event. It's being held virtual this year, getting underway next Tuesday. So, great to have with us and to be talking again with BNY Mellon Purging's CEO, Jim Crowley. He's with us on the phone in New Jersey. Also with us is the company's COO, Emily Schlosser. She's on the phone in New York City. Jim, uh, Emily, great to have you here with Tim and myself. Jim, I want to kick it off with you. How are you? And, and and what's the past year been like for you folks? Well, Carl, Tim, first, thanks for having us. It's a great pleasure to be back and wish we were in person. Me too. <laughs> it has been, yeah, well, 2022, we'll be there. All right. Um, it, it has been, you know, obviously the last 15 months, 15 months have been quite a challenge. And, you know, two priorities, really. First was obviously the safeguarding, you know, the health and the well-being of all of our people. That was priority one. And then, you know, the second thing, Carol, that really became clear to us is that there really is no substitute for business continuity planning and testing of your business continuity processing because it became clear in March when we left the office on March 13th, um, literally overnight, we were virtual working from home. And um, thankfully, we didn't miss a beat through what was really tremendous volume and volatility. Emily, come on in here and, and, and talk a little bit about what it's been like for you as, as chief operating officer. Um, what are the changes that you've made and, and how are you thinking that some of those changes are going to be permanent on the other side of this? Thanks, Tim. Yeah, and thanks, thanks to both of you for having us. I, it, it's, been, it's been quite a ride, as Jim pointed out. So I joined the company as chief operating officer last July in a fully virtual environment, which wow. was interesting to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did have the privilege of meeting Jim briefly before I started, but uh, otherwise I, I've worked largely for the last year um, virtually with, with all of my new colleagues. Um, but it, it's been great. Look, we, we have adopted very quickly to the virtual environment, uh, and we are thinking very carefully about what does this mean for the future. And I think we're, you know, we're seeing employees that are really getting accustomed to working from home and having that flexibility. And then also people who are itching to get back in and, and interact with people in person. So we're looking at options for how we continue with a hybrid work environment to achieve both of those needs while you know, building the, the best environment to serve our clients. I just want to dive right into that because, man, Tim, Tim and I, every day, <laughs> there are stories on the Bloomberg, especially within the financial community, that you are seeing a lot of, it feels like we got to be back in the office. Uh, and, and it feels like the tone of the conversation, uh, Jim, has changed a little bit from maybe a year ago. We were like, well, maybe this hybrid stuff makes sense. I remember James Gorman thinking about maybe we give up some real estate space um, to where everybody now says, wait, we got to be back in the in the environment. Your financial community, you guys are working with folks that are dealing with you know millions and millions of investor accounts globally on a daily basis. What are they saying? Are they hybrid? Are they back in the office? What, what do they anticipate? 
Well, many of our clients, Carol, um, are back in the office. I, I can't say, though, that there is any one client that is back in the office full-time um, with their full staff. Mm. I think most people are still sort of working through this environment and trying to figure out how to be hybrid, who really is essential in office, and who really isn't necessary to be in office. And in fact, you know, for our clients, the most important thing for them is being in front of investors, being in front of yeah. their clients. And that is there a lot really more virtual the, going on with that and people are clients comfortable with that, Jim? Much more virtual. Though I, I have to say though, clients, you know, particularly when you're talking about their investments and their life planning, mm. they really do want to have a personal relationship. And having a personal relationship through a WebEx or any other sort of form of, of video conferencing isn't the same as sitting across the table or meeting yeah. in the restaurant. And, you know, I've actually, um, myself and Emily, we've been on a couple of business trips now where we've actually wow. met with clients in offices. And it's, it's the energy is so much better and the opportunity to communicate clearly and sort of get a sense of what the other person is feeling and thinking, it's much more valuable. So Emily, what does that mean um, for, well, yeah, jump in, jump in, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, and we have seen their investors coming in and out of their, their offices too, right? So, so we are seeing that interpersonal interaction happening again in their offices too with their clients. Hey, Emily, we only have about a minute left here, but we're going to talk more about this on the other side of the break after we do some news. But talk a little bit about how programming for Insight 21 is, is different this year, given the different needs and what you're hearing from clients. Yeah, so having a virtual conference this year actually gives us an awesome opportunity to reach a much broader range of participants. Uh, I think we will have attendance from well across the globe, and we are in anticipating having many more people. Uh, we are focusing our topics on growth, driving technology and innovation. What does this new digital virtual world mean? Of course, we will hit topics like we always have on market insights and investment solutions and how we're thinking differently about organizational constructs in light of everything that's changed over the last 15 months. Let's get back to uh, our guest, BNY Mellon's Pershing CEO, Jim Crowley. He's with us on the phone in New Jersey. Still with us also is BNY Mellon's Pershing COO, Emily Schlosser. She's on the phone in New York City. It's all about uh, BNY Mellon Pershing Insight 2021, held virtually this year. It gets underway next Tuesday. Um, Jim, something we talk about on a daily basis here at Bloomberg uh, even today, we're looking at AMC. It's just kind of off the charts. These meme stocks and the rise of alternative investing platforms, whether it's Reddit, whether it's Robinhood, uh, we are really kind of watching this and how it's upending what seems to be kind of the mainstay financial community. What are your members, what are your, you know, the groups that, the, the folks that come to Insight, what do they want to know about yeah. this? Yeah, so it, it's been quite uh, quite interesting, uh, Carol. You know, thankfully, um, you know, our platform has through all the Reddit and and meme stock, you know, volume volatility has performed quite well. Our clients, interestingly enough, while we see elevated transaction volumes in these names, the overall dollar value, notional value of the of the transactions and uh, things that we're doing for our clients, it's relatively small because mm. our clients are much more what I would call financial planning based, wealth based. And so while there may be some transaction activity in these names, 
it, on a relative basis is really uh, it's a fraction of their overall uh, what they're dealing with when they talk about the wealth of their clients. Hey, Jim, what about when it comes to SPACs? We interviewed Anthony Noto yesterday, yeah. who's the CEO of SoFi. They went public via SPAC yesterday. If we were talking yeah. talking about this, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, we probably wouldn't even have asked you about <laughs> SPACs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Another another sort of a rebirth. Of, rebirth. Of that's a good way of putting it. Right. Because it's, it's not new. It's no. Yeah. These are not new, right? We've seen them before. And it, again, I, I would say that if you were to talk to any one of our clients or a number of our clients, they would, they have an interest, obviously. I mean, this is, it's an interesting vehicle for which clients are coming public and coming to market and some very innovative companies. And so, um, you know, it's, it's something that our clients have an interest in. But if you were to take again, take a look at their overall portfolio, it's very small of what they're putting into portfolios. Hmm, which is interesting. And, and that's good to get that perspective. Hey, Emily, come on back in uh, on our conversation. You know, you worked at Goldman, you were in charge of their global markets division, you operationally have had to look at BNY Mellon Pershing and, you know, look at what the needs are for clients and your team around the globe. How do things look in terms of us getting on the other side of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think, um, first of all, it, it, I, I did come from Goldman. I was in charge of change management there at, at their global markets division. Uh, and so I'm excited to bring much of my transformation expertise to, to Pershing. You know, some of the things that clients are looking for are really around digital capabilities, uh, which not surprising and has certainly been accelerated by what we've seen through the course of the pandemic. I think the clients are really looking for enhanced usability. I mean, really, their expectations are being set by the ease with which they can do anything else in the digital world, from personal banking to ordering an Uber to getting food and groceries delivered, right? right? So we're seeing an elevated expectation around the ultimate um, usability and experience. And as such, we are uplifting our advisory and investment pop- platforms uh, to improve the way that our advisors can help their clients move money, so they can onboard new accounts. Um, we're providing new modern look and feel, streamlined navigation. So we're really excited about what we can bring to bear in terms of our, our digital platforms. Um, just got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, Jim or Emily, uh, you guys have Dr. Gupta, Sanjay Gupta of CNN, Leslie Odom Jr. I've met him at the Boston Pops. Really nice guy. I haven't even seen Hamilton. <laughs> uh, I'm excited for you. I wish we were there. Jim, any thoughts on some of the speakers and just quickly? Oh, okay. Well, look, one of the speakers I've been talking about is Adam Grant and um, mm-hmm. his his book that he's got out. And Emily and I have been rethinking everything that we've been doing um, around around the company related to this topic of transformation and, and not assuming that we know what our clients are expecting. So it's been, um, it's been a great ride for the last 15 months getting through this pandemic, looking forward to getting to the other side yeah. and, and, and seeing you all hopefully in Dallas with us in June of next year. Fingers crossed, all of them. Uh, so looking forward to it. Guys, have a great event. Good luck with it all. Jim Crowley, CEO at BNY Mellon's Pershing and Emily Schlosser. She is the Chief Operating Officer at BNY Mellon's Pershing. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. In the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine is a story about the $250 million initiative, Tim, that is on a mission to help less prosperous schools bridge the wealth gap 
through investments in late stage startups who are really talking about accessing the venture scene. Yeah, and for good reason, because uh, HBCUs have a tiny fraction of the endowments uh, of uh, colleges and universities in the United States. Joining us is Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from New York. Janet, before we get into uh, into what HBCUs are doing right now. Historically black colleges and universities, exactly. for those who yes. may not know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Take us into the finances of, of, of higher education and, and who has the endowments and why they're so concentrated at the top. So the richest schools also happen to be some of the oldest schools, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, for example. And they've been pretty sophisticated investors for a long time. Yale, for example, got into venture capital in 1976. And some of their early investments in you know, VC firms have been quite fruitful. For example, um, if you look at their investment in LinkedIn of a few million dollars, turned into about $85 million when LinkedIn went public. And, you know, you have to have money to make these allocations in, in venture capital. Um, and these HBCUs, their, their endowments are quite small. Um, you know, we mentioned a few in the story. Howard is the largest with about $700 million, But more, more average is, about, is Florida A&M with about $100 million. And, you know, you can't make money in some ways if you don't have money. And it's hard to get access to some of the best funds if you can't, if you don't have the money to invest. Well, before we get into, well, before we get into whether it's a good idea, because you do wonder about the exposure, if you're kind of a smaller school or a school with a smaller endowment, you know, risk reward. But if things don't turn out well, it could really impact your endowment. But one thing that you make, Janet, that's so important, I think the point in your story why this matters is that the difference in these endowments and the size of them, you know, impacts the ability to offer student aid, attract students, top professors, build facilities. I mean, there is a trickle down, trickle up, trickle across the side impact as a result. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of these HBCUs, you look at the share of students who are recipients of Pell Grants for the lowest income students, and the shares are very high. And these schools would like to be able to offer a lot more financial aid, but, you know, they're just trying to make the lights go on. And they don't have a lot of money for, you know, not only building glorious STEM buildings, but, you know, making repairs to their, you know, often 100-year-old buildings. So for them, you know, they're operating on very thin margins to function, you know, to give the aid they can, to try to attract professors. Um, and they just don't have a lot of risk and room to, to lose. So what are HBCUs doing or, or what is Base 10 Partners doing to try to alleviate this? So they're trying to, um, to entice HBCUs to, 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 to invest in a new fund. And what, what is unusual is they're not charging fees, which, as you know, you know their fees can be quite high, especially when um, private equity and venture capital are successful. You're paying you know, fees. Um, and then they're giving some of the carry to create scholarships for these students, but also trying to help build the pipeline of recruiting, interns, hiring, um, practice with job interviews um, for some of these students. And the portfolio companies that Base 10 um, is investing in, they're also very interested in, in improving diversity and having access to students that they typically may not be recruiting from. Well, one issue, though, with venture capital is that you have to be in a position in order to be comfortable losing your entire investment because that's what venture capital is. For every Facebook or LinkedIn, 
there are dozens of, of, of bets that don't end up working out. Um, what are they doing to, to try to offset some of that risk? Well, we're talking about later stage companies, not early stage companies that you know may likely fail, and I think that's part of the part of the a little bit alleviating the risk. Because um, if you are a, an endowment of about a hundred million, you often just don't have a lot of options. Right. You know, if you were, you might put it in an index fund. You know, we had a comment from Car- the former Carthage College CEO in Wisconsin, who beat the pants off of Harvard his tenure average because he had a very simple formula of vanilla funds, or if you could invest in some fund of funds, but you're still paying fees. So uh, so tell us about, though, this $250 million fund and the, and the individual behind it all. Um, so he is um, a Stanford alum. He, um, you know, has been successful, um, Ade, uh, Ajo, and he um, was really interested and moved by the death of George Floyd to try to help these companies, these, these schools. You know, as he said, systematic inequality is really about wealth inequality. Um, you know, his, he was born in Spain. He didn't have the typical um, experience growing up as an African-American in the United States. Uh, he went to Stanford and made some connections and decided this was something that he wanted to do. How have HBCUs reacted and how have they embraced or not embraced the strategy? So some HBCUs have invested including the schools we um, included in the story, Howard and Florida A&M. But, you know, not everybody, if you're a small $50 million endowment or $100 million endowment, you may not be as familiar with the idea of venture capital. Um, And you just may think it's too risky. You still have to turn the lights on every year at the school. Yeah, I mean, but you do think about, you know, the conversation in many ways over the past year, right, Tim, has evolved from, you know, we've learned it's not just about income gaps, it's about wealth gaps, and that can be generational. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I do feel like, you know, Janet, you get to that in your story that you do think about these schools that maybe don't have the same access to the funds that some of the really wealthier schools do that tend to be predominantly white, you know, and it just perpetuates a cycle that somehow it's got to it's got to change. All right. And if you look at, say, Yale, um, heard a lot of CIOs, Mm-hmm. at very schools, Princeton, MIT, Stanford, and they tend to invest together on the same deals. So again, it's very, it becomes very clubby and very insular. And if you didn't work in the Yale Investment Office, you may not be invited to participate in these deals that you know, one of the other very wealthy schools found out about. But then again, then you can't even make, you can't write the text because your endowment is so small. Jenna, what's the time horizon for an investment like this? And, and, and when do we find out and when do they find out if this was a successful way to, to grow their endowment? Um, you know, in some ways it could be a couple of years or it could be 10 years in the typical yeah. life of a, of the, of a uh, private equity fund. Yeah, but it, this is a really kind of thoughtful story and just thinking how you change the dynamics and the trends that we've seen for such a long time. Janet Lauren, thank you so much. Higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. Tim, maybe it's because my daughter's gone through, you know, the college application process and we've learned about a lot of schools, but, you know, there's so much money involved in these endowments and you do wonder about the advantages for those really, really rich schools versus some other ones. Yeah, it was shocking to read in this story the concentration of endowments of just the top 10 schools. I mean, in some ways Mm -hmm. it really mimics the ultra wealthy in the United States and individuals who can control uh, the uh, vast majority of the wealth in the country. A lot of wealth in the hands of uh, a very few, whether you're talking about colleges, universities, or individuals. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, we like to do a daily check on the virus and the vaccine rollout. And one headline that just crossed uh, catching our attention, uh, we are seeing that New Jersey planning to shut some of the mega sites uh, and New York City planning some school vaccines. So there's a lot still going on here, uh, certainly in the U.S. and on a global basis. One of our go-to people, I don't know that he's gotten any sleep in the last 12, 13, 14 months, but he's back in our studio. He did the virus tracker. <laughs> he and his team did the vaccine tracker. You saw his tweets each and every day. We he waited created for them five vaccines. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, Drew Armstrong, is senior editor for U.S. Healthcare for Bloomberg News. He, he didn't us create the, the vaccines. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I, I think he I, probably could have. I think I think people know you were joking, um, but we do love him anyway. He is senior editor for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News. Joins from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Um, Drew, you mentioned that this is your first day back in the office. It is. It is. Uh, since the fall. I, since, since the fall. Since, I believe, since September. But okay. I feel like that symbolizes something so big for where we are as a city. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I was, I got my second dose of uh, Moderna vaccine about a month ago. Uh, my wife and I immediately booked a trip to Mexico for exactly two weeks after my you last did. dose uh, to, and, and left our lovely uh, children who we've seen so much of um, <laughs> at home with our nanny. And, you know, here I am back in the office and I've been talking to a lot of other people who it's their first day back again um, as well. And yeah, I mean, you know, you look at some of the stats where, you know, there's certainly a, a strong downward trend in cases, hospitalizations, deaths all around the country. Um, certainly some underlying things to be worried about. And if you look around the globe, it's a very different picture in um, a lot of places. But, you know, a, a lot of my attention just as a, as a news editor is really now focused elsewhere outside the United States in terms of where the story is and where the where the crisis is. And things are beginning to feel much, much different here personally and from everybody I, I speak to and have run across um, uh, in, in talking to people and some recent travels. You know, it's funny because we're going to do the Big Take story, the Bloomberg Big Take, and it's about real estate investments, office, and basically where people are investing is like lab space because of what happened during the pandemic. So it's interesting to see where the, where we're going forward. When you look around the globe, for a while, Drew, we were thinking about whatever's going on in China kind of tells us to some extent what's next for us. Um, what do you look towards to kind of get an idea of what's next and whether or not a new wave is going to come or, or what have you? Yeah, I think one of the things that we're really keeping a close eye on is, you know, some of these outbreaks in South America where you're seeing very significant, you know, COVID numbers. And in some places, despite quite you know, real efforts to vaccinate people. I mean, you look at what's happening in Chile. They've got a better vaccination coverage than the United States, and yet they still have a, a, a pretty heinous outbreak that they're dealing with. You know, um, How come? I, I think everybody's trying to figure that out. Is yeah. it, you know, certain subsets of the population? Is it an issue of, you know, variant versus vaccine? Um, you know, likewise, you go around the globe uh, to places in, in Asia where they have far fewer cases than we have in the U.S. and yet are still kind of on, on total lockdown in, in some of these countries. Or, you know, you look in other places, uh, some of our amazing reporters out in Hong Kong were just noting, you know, about how people aren't getting the vaccine there. And it's been hard for, you know, nightclubs and bars to open back up. So, so much of what's going on in the globe right now is, you know, as much about risk perception and risk tolerance as it is about the epidemic when I think we when we look at how people are how people are acting how they're approaching vaccines how they're approaching you know the inevitable some level of existing disease in in the community um, where they are uh, it, it's as much culture as it is science I think at this point well speaking of the science and I'm, I'm curious as to how well 
the vaccines have proven to work, the mRNA vaccines specifically, because a big part of the conversation, Drew, over the last few months was, okay, well, the pandemic is not over until the world is vaccinated. And that's because there could be strains that develop in certain parts of the world that could be get through and get past vaccines. Is there any indication that some variants and mutations at this point can do that? Not with the mRNA vaccines in a meaningful way. I think, you know, you are always going to see variants. There have been a bunch of them identified and, and some of, you know, variants of concern. Um, and it's not that they don't cause disease because they do. I think what you're seeing, though, is that they are not causing severe disease, at least in the cases of these, you know, mRNA vaccines, which have been proven highly, highly effective. It's worth remembering that, you know, if you take COVID and you turn it into a cold, that's a pretty good solution. You know, it, you can still have cases yeah. right. if they're mild cases, that. you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that's that is a manageable thing. It's still not great, but, you know, it, it, the problem is more or less, you know, at that point, it starts to go away. What I uh, am thinking a lot about is, do I need a booster? And do I need to mark my calendar? We had Dr. William Hazeltine on, and he's like, I've marked my calendar. You know, this is a guy who understands biotech and science in a big way. Do I need to be, do all of us need to be marking our calendar six months from our last shot to plan for a booster? I think it's a great question. I think the answer is we don't know. Um, you know, there's... These vaccines are not old enough for us to really, really, really know how effective they will be in the real world, you know, at nine months, at a year, things like that. We just don't have a lot of great data on that. We have people from early on in the trials. I'm sure they're following very closely to see, you know, what are their antibody levels, what are their infection risks, so on and so forth. But we really, frankly, you know, do not know yet. I'm sure. I mean, we have a, you know, when we see mutations, when we see viruses that change, you know, the flu, which is highly, 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 um, uh, 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 has a high rate of mutation, which is why we get new flu shots right. every year. You know, but with this, I, I think we just don't honestly know yet, you know, what exactly those boosters are going to look like. Will it be something more like they're, you know, tailored to new mutations in a way, if that's, if those end up being very problematic for the mRNA vaccines? Um, are they tailored? Are they done? as a booster shot. I really think that that's still going to be up in the air. I think a lot of people are very smartly betting that, yes, we will need and get booster shots. But I wouldn't be surprised to see that dynamic and rollout look very, very different than the kind of initial campaign has. So is it like we swing by the CVS or Walgreens and just grab it or from our doctors? Or is it like, do we need these mega sites to be able to quickly ramp up again and just got about 20 seconds? Andrew? I have a feeling it'll be a lot more like getting the flu shot every year. You'll see yeah. lower uptake and, you know, people you know, kind of uptake fades away as, as the as the virus does. Until the next yeah. virus hits us, right? Yeah. Because they're going to come, well, hopefully right? Hopefully we're, ready, yes. we're more no, no, ready for that. Right? We're, yeah, we're, no, we're, yeah, we'll be doing this again at some point or another, um, unfortunately. On that note. Happy Wednesday. Yeah, thanks, Drew. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're so glad you're back. Thanks, guys. Drew Armstrong, Drew Armstrong, he's senior editor for U.S. Healthcare. He has really kept us on the straight and narrow, uh, really throughout this pandemic here at Bloomberg News. So a must read, his whole team. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we've got just about ten and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Been an interesting day. Uh, it feels like the overall markets. Uh, definitely some of the uh, wind being kicked out of them because <laughs> uh, we are definitely off our highs of the session. Still up just slightly. Uh, but nonetheless, if you look at uh, one of the meme stocks, your AMC, it's just off the chart. So trying to make sense of it all. Uh, great to have back with us. Been looking forward to it. Doug Ramsey, he's Chief Investment Officer of the Luthold Group. Uh, their core investment fund beating most of its peers year to date up uh, just about 12% or so in 2021, up 26% in the past 12 months. Doug back with us from Minneapolis. Doug, good to have you here. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing okay. Hanging in there, trying to make sense out of some of the uh, kind of wackiness that continues to <laughs> invade our markets while trying <laughs> to focus on fundamentals. What are the fundamentals you're, you're uh, focusing on, especially because I know you just trimmed back uh, your equity exposure a little bit? Well, you know, we've been concerned, and this has been uh, a long-running concern, and, and quite frankly, a little bit of a premature concern on uh, valuations, especially U.S. large caps. I mean, uh, you know, whether you base it on forward earnings, you know, we do a lot with normalized earnings, you know, sort of the approach that Robert Schiller has popularized. We've been doing that here for decades. Uh, We're very close to the valuation peaks that we made back at the uh, tech bubble heights uh, 21 years ago. Uh, and, And the average stock, so to speak, I mean, if you look at mid, large, and uh, small is far more expensive than it ever was in the late 90s. So it's a very broadly expensive market that's made it difficult. And now, uh, you know, we've got uh, inflation ticking up, which one would expect at some point might lift bond yields, but uh, that's that's not been the case here yeah. in the past few months. So you've still got that very low discount rate that bullish investors can argue support this valuation structure, but we're obviously skeptical. So if you're skeptical, what do you do in a situation like this? Do you go to a little bit of cash and sort of sit on the sidelines and wait for a pullback where you can get in at a less expensive price? Yeah, that's our thinking. As a matter of fact, rather than moving to cash, we've got uh, a hedging strategy we've been managing for uh, 30 years. Somehow we've been able to stay in the market shorting (laughs) for 30 years, but that's because it's used as a hedge. Right. Uh, our, our grizzly strategy uh, targets vulnerable stocks from valuation, momentum, earnings estimate revision, earnings quality perspective. Uh, so we use that as a hedge, and that's that's how we uh, that's how we pull back to 55 percent. I do expect a, a, a pretty good correction later this summer. Uh, part of the so 10 percent, just ago. a real 10 percent correction here, Doug. Yeah. I, you know, certainly I think it could carry deeper than that, especially when you look at, you know, how far we've come off of those lows from last March. I mean, the normal uh, first correction in a bull market retraces a pretty good piece of that. Yeah. And because that move is so large, I'm not sure I want to talk about percentages just because we look at, you know, we would then be looking for bottoming conditions. But the reason we cut back now is just because, um, you know, obviously it's difficult to time. The technicals, still, I think, are very good. I think it's more a question of, you know, when are markets going to respond to this inflation pickup and when might they conclude that it's a little bit more than than a transitory thing. Listen, so investors dealing with things like, okay, is inflation transitory or not, uh, and looking at the outlook. At the same time, you continue to have the administration making moves. Um, We just had a headline crossing. President Biden planning to amend a U.S. ban on investments in companies leaked to China's military this week. 
after the Trump era policy was challenged in court and left investors confused kind of about the extent of its reach to subsidiary firms. This is according to people with the matter. So again, amending President Trump's China blacklist, but uh, and that targeted key industry. So it's just a reminder that things continue to come out of this administration, Tim, too, that can impact investments thought, you know, investors thoughts about the outlook. Yeah, Doug, I'm, I'm wondering what it is. What is that signal that the market gets that really shows that inflation is is here to stay? Is it wage growth? I certainly think that would be a piece of it. But I think, you know, the housing market remaining strong and house prices continuing to escalate. I mean, you're talking about, you know, extreme underbuilding in uh, the U.S. housing market for the better part of a decade. Um, as a matter of fact, we've been in the home builders. I mean, we don't believe there's a housing bubble. We're also in uh, another sector that's uh, been undersupplied of late, and it's a situation that's going to continue probably for a couple years, and that's semiconductor equipment. So I, I do think of the, uh, some of these areas as sort of, you know, chronic, you know, not just the temporary uh, COVID-related supply shortages. I mean, they're just things that they're going to take a while to address. So I think the issue is, I mean, we will uh, see that the 5 and maybe even 6% CPI inflation numbers we see in the next couple months will be transitory. The issue is, what if we settle down to 3 or 3.5? Three I mean, that's just clearly too high for the current level of bond yields and also the current level of most equity valuations. Hey, I want to go back to just some what you said about the housing market. You said we're not mm-hmm. in a housing bubble. Um, why not? I mean, we're seeing that prices remain out of reach for many. At the same time, we see that homes are selling for significantly above asking prices. What tells you we're not in a bubble? Uh, the, the undersupply of the last decade. I mean, we are still at a very low rate of housing starts uh, just on a raw basis, let alone accounting for all the population growth in the last couple of decades. And actually, the low that we made a year ago was right about in line with the average recession low in housing starts. Mm. We've seen uh, over all the recessions going back the last 60 years. And again, that's not accounting for the expansion in in household formations that's occurred over that period. Hey, so just real quickly on inflation, because I think it's interesting what you said about we may not keep stay at five or six percent, right? Um, but three and a half percent would be problematic. Larry Fink of BlackRock, we have a story out on the Bloomberg says that investors may be underestimating the potential for a spike in inflation. Three and a half percent is it problematic, especially if we see continued um, fiscal policy that is stimulative? Uh, at- Absolutely. I mean, just con- considering I- I'm talking about from a market's perspective, yes. I mean, the old rule of thumb used to be that the forward PE on the stock market should approximate a level of 20 minus the inflation rate, the old rule of 20. I mean, this was commonplace 30 years ago, back right. when inflation was last considered to be a problem, sort of uh, disappeared from the lexicon because it's not been a problem until now. But even with the the dramatic ratcheting up of forward earnings on the S&P, we're still at 22 times forward earnings. So, you know, if we're going to hit three and a half percent inflation, I mean, that would, uh, I mean, that would imply a 
more than just a correction, right? I mean, a, a bear market. But again, I think investors have become so convinced, I mean, right. aided by Fed speak, that this is transitory, that they're <laughs> actually <it> <laughs> waiting for the, right, the whites of the eyes of that 3%, 3.5% inflation to stick. Yeah. So it could yet be a while. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, love having you on. Always do. Come back soon, please. Um, really appreciate it. Doug Ramsey, he is the chief investment officer at the Luthel Group on the phone from Minneapolis, just really kind of has seen a lot of market cycles and understands uh, when it comes to valuations and, uh, you know, the different metrics to really kind of figure out where the market goes from here. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.